Um, well, we're, we've just read from John's Gospel, uh, this 20th chapter here. We've been wor- working through John the whole year, looking at what John has to say about the person and the work of Jesus. And that we have said that um, John is writing this letter for, with a very specific purpose. Now, I must confess to you tonight that the whole reason I chose John over a year ago was to get to this text. I love it. It's one of my favorite passages in all the scriptures. If you can have favorite passages, I love this one because I so resonate with this apostle, the disciple turned apostle named Thomas that we read about here. I hope you'll see why too and maybe you'll resonate with him as well. But just to catch you up to speed a little bit, Jesus has died. Last week we looked at the crucifixion. This week we're looking at life a week after the resurrection. So he is, he is risen from the grave. And now we're about a week later after that resurrection Sunday where we find ourselves in the story. So just sort of place you along the narrative a little bit. That is where we're at. But before we go any further, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had a moment in your life when you needed to convince someone of something? What was that like for you? You need to convince someone of something. What were the links to which you went to try to convince them of something? I've got a story for you. Right before Laura, that's my wife, uh, before Laura and I got engaged, let's just say that things weren't going too well. Uh, We had been dating long enough, and, and a major moment was coming up for me personally. I was about to graduate from my graduate school, and I was soon to move away from the city that both of us were living in to take a job. Well, in the face of this, my sweet girlfriend at the time was left wondering, well, what's going to happen to us? Okay. So you could begin to see, she's saying, she said, well, do I need to move too? Are you going to ask me to marry you? Um, would we do that thing that where you, you might as well just stab yourself in the eyes a hundred times over called a long distance relationship that I cannot personally stand? Some of you know what I'm talking about. All right. All of this rightfully, all of this rightfully left her quite unsure of what her and our future was going to be. And I was faced with the very real issue of dealing with her fears about how we would continue. There's nothing like a good relationship story to get y'all to perk up. So this is just, I'm just buttering you up here. So what did I do? Here we go. I knew that I wanted to marry her. I knew that more than I knew much of anything in my life. So I went out, I bought her a ring, and began planning my proposal. Then, on June 5th, 2007, Operation Convince Laura to Marry Me commenced, okay? And whatever doubts, whatever unbelief was in her, I needed to tackle it head on. So I planned the day. We went to this beautiful winery where we, were, where we, where we lived near in, uh, in Missouri, and um, I wrote her a song. It was totally cheesy, y'all, but it was sweet, you know. That's, I know, right? Good. That's good. Yeah. And then... Um, <laughs> ego, Brandon. Um, and uh, I gave her a, through the years, I was 29, I think, when I got married. And so through the years, I had been, you know, prayed and journaled about my future wife. And I was able to sort of coalesce some of those prayers in a journal for her, which I thought was pretty special and pretty unique. So it was pretty fun for her to read uh, my prayers for her from, you know, five years ago, whatever, before I even knew her. Anyways, we went out to this nice dinner at one of our favorite places. And then To evidence my test intentions, my best intentions, to be with her forever, I took her back to the very first spot we went to uh, on our first date. I got there at sunset, and I got down on one knee, y'all, 
and I barfed up my food that I had just eaten. I'm totally playing. I'm totally playing. That did not happen. That was totally for effect. But, I'm glad. but here's what I did do. I asked her to marry me, and it was the and it, it was the um, and it was the dumbest decision that she ever made to say yes. But here's the point: I needed, I needed. No, for her sake, I really wanted to calm any fears and relieve any doubts that she might have regarding my heart for her. I really did love her, but I needed to show her so that she would believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was serious about her knowing what I really thought about her. Y'all, tonight we come to my, one of my favorite passages, as I've already mentioned. And I want you to see that it's, a, it's been a full week since the resurrection. John tells us right there in verse 26 that it's been eight days later, which was just a, a Greek way of saying a week later. And a disciple lot like me comes to the fore. A disciple, if you've ever had doubts or wrestled with unbelief, that I think that you would like to, think about it, think about this, y'all. Have you ever wondered how to talk to your friends about your faith? Fearful, fearful of what they might say to you. How will you respond to someone if they bring up, right, a strong argument against Christianity? I mean, who hasn't, Christian or not, right? Whether you're a Christian or not, who hasn't wrestled with the truth claims of Christianity itself? What about problems like pain and suffering, and how does that happen in the context of a God who claims to be good? And y'all, maybe this is you. This was me in college. I was a biology major. And so this whole idea of living and immersing myself in a naturalistic world and life view, how did I deal with what the Bible said and spoke of when it talked about things like miracles? You see, all these things can be the groundwork for a lot of questions and doubts about your faith. So if you find yourself like that at all, I think you're going to love Thomas tonight. You see, we see in our text tonight that Jesus is going to go to great lengths to tend to our unbelief. He desires to have us convinced that He is for us and that He loves us. And though we would rather remain unconvinced for a whole host of reasons, He does all He can, y'all, to woo us woo us to himself. So how does he do that? How does Jesus help our doubts? How does he meet with us? Well, the first thing I want you to see tonight is that he calms our fears. Let's take a look at what I mean when I say that Jesus calms our fears, rather he calms our doubts. He calms our doubts. Look at what Jesus does here in the text. We're told that the disciple Thomas had not been with the other disciples a week earlier when Jesus had appeared to them. They had seen him. They said it right here in this text. Listen, it says this. It says that they, um, that they had seen him. They were with him in verse 24 and 25. And Thomas, who was not with them, was now with the rest of them now. Okay, And he says, no way. There is no way that a dead man who died on the cross, the Romans were excellent at killing people. They did not mess that up. And so there is no way... That, there's, that, that he could be alive again. In fact, he says this. What does he say? Unless, verse 20, um, sorry, what verse is that? Verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of nails and place my finger into the mark, uh, uh, mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never 
believe. But y'all, something amazing happens, doesn't it? In verse 27, it's almost like Jesus, who wasn't in the room when Thomas said that, heard him because, boom, what happens? Jesus comes and joins that gathering, and he says, peace to everyone, and then he looks directly at Thomas, and he says, in effect, Thomas, Thomas, I know what it is. I know what it is, and I know what it's going to take for you to believe me. So I'll give you the evidence that you need here. Give me your hand. And then what does Jesus do? He's basically sticking out his hands, these resurrected hands. And he looks at Thomas and he says, Go ahead. Put your fingers right there. Test me. See me. Know me. And this is wonderful because this is not something that Jesus had to do. Thomas was making the claim that unless I, did, unless I see this, I'm not believing it. And Jesus in his kindness meets Thomas in the midst of his doubts in the midst of his objections. He doesn't scold him for it. He is not angry because of it. But rather, he meets Thomas in the midst of his doubt. One pastor, 1,600 years ago, put it like this when he said this. I love this quote. It comes from um, a man named Gregory the Great, they called him. He said this, The unbelief of Thomas is more profitable to our faith than the belief of the other disciples. For... The touch by which he is brought to believe confirms our minds in belief beyond all questions. In other words, do you see what he's saying? We need, we need a guy like Thomas because we so resonate with who he is and what his story is like. I want you to see the tenderness of Jesus meeting Thomas in the midst of his doubt. Now, I don't know how many of you are art students, art majors, art historian majors or whatever, but I'm about to show you one of my favorite pieces of art of all time. It comes from a man, if you've ever heard of him, his name is Caravaggio. And he has this piece called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. Now, incredulity is a big word, but it just means disbelief, okay? The idea it's hard to believe something. I want, you to show, I want to show you this, and I want you to see the story that he painted into this picture. So here we see four men, okay? Can you see it here? Four men. And over here on, on the screen's left, we see Jesus. And what is he doing? Do you see his hand here? He's taking it and he's holding another man's hand right here. And he's holding this man's hand as he's guiding it into his very side. This is St. Thomas who we're reading about. And Jesus is meeting him. He's meeting him where he's at. Look at the picture that Caravaggio is trying to capture here is the tenderness of the resurrected Jesus even guiding into sensitively, tenderly, almost bending to meet the doubts of Thomas by saying, here, dear one, put your hand into my side. And what I also love about this is how these other two men, who if you know the story, right, they were there earlier. They would have already seen this, and yet they're still bewildered. You can't quite see it, but this guy over here on the far right, his mouth is actually open, and Caravaggio painted him that way to show what? To show still shock. That even after time had passed, there was still shock and unbelief. It's a very wonderful picture, and people who study these sort of things notice how the foreheads form a cross there. As a whiff to say, what's at the center of the painting is what Christ's work has done on the cross. Caravaggio is a master, and he captured this. Why am I sharing this with you? Well, it's just to show you the idea that the tenderness of our Lord, how he calms our doubts, how he goes to us and he calms our doubts. Now, what you must see, therefore, is this. Sorry, I'm not going to go there quite yet. Um, is this. 
that I want you to see, therefore, that any doubt that you have, that the doubts that you have are not necessarily barriers to faith. And that needs to be said over and over again, that doubt and faith are not polar opposites within Christianity. That part of the expression that we see over and over again in the life of God's people is that it's always doubt mixed with faith. For those of you who have a Bible, I'm going to get you to turn there. If you have your phone or your devices, go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to try to be quick here, but I want to read it to you. Jesus has risen from the dead in Matthew's account. He's about to ascend to His Father. And there in Matthew chapter 28, we read this in chapter 16. Now the eleven disciples were, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And then verse 17 is something powerful. Matthew says this, And when they saw Him, when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped. And I don't know about you, but if you saw a dead man walking around again, what would you do? Worship seems appropriate. And yet that's not how the sentence ends. The sentence ends with these words, But some doubted. Isn't that amazing? Standing and seeing in the presence of a resurrected man, that doubt is still welcome. I want you to see that tonight, dear friends. I want you to see, I want you to see that part of what Christianity is is that our doubts are taken seriously. The small book in the very back of the Bible, Jude, that one-page book, verse 22 has a wonderful line in it. It says this, he says, And have mercy on those who doubt. And so part of what it means to be a Christian is to extend the hospitality where people can process their, 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 their doubts. Jesus was kind and patient with you, and He continues to be that way with you. And so we ought to create a context as well like that. But before we go any further, I need to say this as well. I need to press in. Many of us have doubts, whether it's us or our friends, about Christianity. And we say this, you know what? I just can't believe in Jesus. I just can't do it. You know what? I understand. And in a sense, that's very true. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that perhaps some of the reasons that we can't believe in Christianity, that we can't believe that a man has risen from the grave, is because we side on the side of cynicism. Of cynicism. And here's what I mean by that. You see, it's real easy to sit on the edge and say, you know what? I'm not going to be duped. I'm not going to be duped by that Christianity mess. I know what is really true. And let me say this. I think two things you need to consider. This is where you're coming from tonight. One, you cannot be cynical forever. Here's what I mean by that. You cannot go on being cynical and apply your cynicism forever. And here's why. Because the cynical view of life always seeks to sort of pull the curtain back and see what's behind it. You see, cynicism says that what is being presented, what is before me, is not real and it is not true. And I am bound to determine to find out what is real behind it. You see what I'm saying like that? Cynicism is always seeing fronts. It's always saying that whatever exists can't be true. Now, I think this is very important because, as I'm about to show you, C.S. Lewis, that great writer, once wrote this about cynicism in his book called The Abolition of Man. Read that together with me on the screen. He says this, You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. See, it's good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How, if you saw through them, could the garden too? See, it's no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, I love this line, listen, 
If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Y'all, he is saying that if you always try to see behind things, you won't see anything at all. You'll believe nothing at all if cynicism is applied consistently. A view of life like this is self-defeating. You will believe in something. Some things are assumed. Some things we therefore have faith in. That's first. Secondly, I want you to see that as Tim Keller points out, that the doubts that you have about Christianity, if you have them, the doubts that you have about Christianity are really, are really just another deeply held set of beliefs that make Christianity implausible or not believable. Does that make sense? You see, every doubt that you would have about Christianity is a doubt necessarily because in your mind you have a whole other set of beliefs that invalidate whatever this is trying to say. And what I want to encourage you to do tonight, that if that's you, can I just say this? Will you be intellectually honest enough, like many in this room have, to actually begin to doubt these things over here as much as you doubt these things over here? To use Keller's language, will you doubt your doubts? Will you doubt your doubts. I think to be intellectually honest demands it. You see, here's what I want you to see tonight is I want you to see that this is exactly where Thomas was. Dead people don't rise again from the grave. Therefore, the only way I'm ever going to believe is if I stick my fingers in the man's side. And here's what I love about Jesus. He stands before Thomas and he says, Thomas, bring me your doubts. I can take care of those. And dear friends, I want you to know tonight that Jesus stands before you as well and says, dear friend, bring me your doubt. I know that I can deal with that as well. Here's the thing. Some of you are saying, yeah, that's real easy because Jesus was standing before Thomas. He's not standing before me. You see what I mean? That seems like that would be an easy no-brainer like way of getting around this. And here's what I want to say to you tonight. Yes, He is not likely to appear in this room in the next 20 minutes or so, but He has given you ample evidence right here, ample clarity right here, right here in His Word, the Bible. And there are countless thinkers who have lived and died before you who have thought about the doubts that you may have. And I just want to ask you, are you willing to doubt your doubts tonight? Are you willing to do that in RUF? Listen, I know Matt well enough if you go to UNT, And I can say this about here at TCU, and that's this. We want to be a place in RUF where those are safe to explore with us. We want this to be a place where you can ask questions about your faith. RUF does not believe that you must be an idiot before you come in here, so check your brain at the door. We're never saying, hey, get stupid before you come to Jesus. No. Christianity is a thinking man's religion. It really is. And I want to say this, that some of y'all are making... One of the reasons that Christianity is so difficult for you right now is because, listen, it's because you refuse to think about it. You don't want to engage with it. And I invite you to please, to please, please, please see yourself in Thomas's story. 
See his honesty. And yet see Jesus standing before him as well tonight. First of all, Jesus calms. He calms our doubts. What else does he do? This is the second point of two tonight. The second thing I want you to see is that he not only calms our doubts, but secondly, that he confronts or he challenges or he confronts our unbelief. He confronts our unbelief. You see, you must understand this. There is more to unbelief and doubt than not having enough information and data. Let me say that again. There is more to unbelief than not having enough information and data. Thomas needed something more than evidence. He needed more than something evidence. Evidence is great, but it will never be enough. And here's why. We're like Thomas, y'all. We're so much like Thomas. Look at this. It's not just that we can't believe. It's that it actually goes deeper. Here it is. It's that we don't want to believe. You say, what? What do you mean? Unpack that for me, Ryan. Here's what I mean. You see, Thomas not only needed, he wanted to see Jesus. He wanted evidence with his eyes. But there was something greater going on in Thomas's life than merely not having enough evidence. And the text tells us what that is. Let's explore this together. Look what Jesus does when he talks to Thomas. He, after he says, put your hands here, give me your hand, put them in my side. Thomas says these words. He says, my Lord and my God, verse 28. And then Jesus says to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And look what he says right before this, right before Thomas gives his expression of my Lord and my God. He looks at Thomas and he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now y'all, I can't put this any more forcefully. The actual language on it is this. Unbelieving and be believing. Jesus is looking at Thomas and he's not going to the intellect. He's going to the heart. He's going to the volition, to the will, to the want to apparatus in Thomas's life. And he's looking at Thomas and he's saying, Thomas, stop in your unbelief and choose to believe. You see, he didn't, he's not leaving it up here in the intellectual. He's going down to the heart and saying, I want you, to quote a line from a song, I want you to want me. Okay? <laughs> That's what he's doing. He's saying, I want you to choose me. And here's what I want you to see tonight. Jesus is saying, stop not believing and make the decision, Thomas, to believe in me. And y'all, here is the reason why we so need to hear this. We don't want to believe. Why? Why is it that we would go, why don't want, why do not, why, why would we not want to believe? And here's the answer. Because if you begin to read the Bible, and if you begin to see what Jesus is actually saying about himself, and if you begin to learn the other parts of the story about what the Bible and the story begins to say about people, you begin to read, whoa, these people have really screwed some things up. They've really jacked the world up. And wait a second, this has got some harsh news about me in here too if I begin to listen to it. So guess what the better option is for us? I don't want to believe it. I'd rather bury my hand in the sand. You see, denial really is a better option than for me to have to come to terms with what the Bible is actually saying about who we are. 
And you know what? That's true of every single one of us. You see, our hearts don't want to believe. And that's why Jesus must come to us and confront that unbelief and say, I've given you evidence. I've given you everything you need. And now I stand before you tonight and I say to you, stop unbelieving and believe in me. Now listen, I want to pause. I want to pause for a moment before we look at Thomas's response. And I want you to sit here with Thomas. The whole reason in verses 31 and 30 we see it, that John wrote this letter. And this is the sum total of what I've said all year long. So please listen up. This is a high moment, okay? This is the tip of the spear. Is this. The whole reason that John wrote the letter was to give you ample evidence, ample reasoning for seeing what then stood before Thomas, the risen Jesus. John has brought Thomas face to face with the risen one. Jesus has called forth faith in Thomas. And I want you to see tonight, dear friends, maybe for the first time, the risen Jesus incarnate in heaven, but inscripturated here in His Word, stands before you tonight and says these exact same words to you. Stop unbelieving and believe. And believe. You see, that's the whole reason John wrote the letter. was to draw you up and into the story of what Jesus was all about. So that... The text tells us right here, verse 31, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Look, y'all, do you think that all of a sudden Thomas's doubts went away after that day? No, he doubted again. There's no way around it. And what I want you to see is that doubt and faith go together and that Jesus is kind with it and yet He still confronts it. And this means that in seasons of ebbing faith, that it's not the end of the story. You see, many of us grew up in churches with language like this. You were told, you know what? You can't do such and such a thing or, or worse yet, God can't really do such and such a thing because of what? Because of your weak faith. And if you just had a little bit more faith, God could do some amazing things in the world. Listen, do you think the God of the universe is so weak and impotent that He can't outschool you on your weak faith? That's a, pretty, that's a pretty impotent God. And Christianity gives us no sort of it. Listen, think about it. God doesn't go, boy, I wish Ryan had some more faith because I sure like to get a lot of stuff done on TCU's campus. <laughs> no, of course not. No. God is big enough to use asses. See Balaam. See Balaam. He's big enough to use asses to get his work done. That's how powerful he is. Listen, it's my favorite illustration, y'all. I have to say it. Sorry, we're getting close on time. I'm about to close anyways. You, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine a parachuter. Have anybody in here ever skydived? I've never done it. But apparently you go with a tandem person your first time. Okay, they don't just let you go fall out of an airplane by yourself in the first time. And here's the deal. Imagine this sky skydiver. She is jumping in tandem with an expert. And as she's falling out of the plane, she thinks, there is no way that this chute is going to hold us. And all the while, guess what the expert is thinking? 
<laughs> no problem. This thing's got us. This thing's got us. And all the way down, after the ride, they land and they go to safety. I just want to ask you a question. Who was saved by the parachute? Which one? The answer is both. The answer is both. Both were. Ah, but don't you see they had differing views of confidence, different levels of trust in the chute. And the point is, who cares? What saved them was not their belief in the chute, but what? The chute itself. And here's what I want you to see. That saving faith is not looking at ourselves, friends, and trusting in our confidence in a particular object. Rather, what saves us is the object, and what is saving us throughout the testimony of the Scriptures is Jesus. Is Jesus, not your faith. And therefore, and therefore, listen, I want you to hear me say this, that weak faith in the right object is always better than strong faith in the wrong object. That weak faith in the right object is always better and always more right, if you will, than a strong faith in the wrong object. Dear friends, I want you to see tonight the great links that Jesus goes to to convince you of His great love for you. I want you to see how Jesus tends, He bends, as it were, to our unbelief by giving us evidence here in His Word and by confronting our unbelief, which is really just getting us to examine what we believe in what, and something else. And y'all, which puts us right back at the beginning of the story tonight, if you ask me. Because all of us are left asking, well, what happens if I really come to Him, or if I were to come to Him more deeply. And I think we find ourselves with these other men in the room that night. You see, I think that Lewis was right. I'm going to cite Lewis here. Lewis says this. He says, he says We are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Can anybody resonate with that? You know, many of us are not afraid of God giving us His best. We're just afraid of what the best might mean for us. And you know what? That's exactly what like those men meant, meant in that room. That's why they're scared. That's why they're hunkered down. Their Lord has just been killed. The Romans are coming after them next. They're beginning to reason. That's exactly what they're thinking. But dear friends, here's what I want you to see. The one who stands before Thomas tonight stands before you. He stands as the one who has conquered death. The death that you and I are so desperately afraid of. I mean, after all, it is the reason that we're afraid due to the fact that we won't get the life that we want. I mean, isn't that what we're most afraid of? That we might actually lose our lives if we follow Jesus? Or we might lose the one that we have? We all sense Genesis chapter 3. It's been the same way. We've wanted control of our own lives. And because of that, we're afraid of anything that threatens it. Listen to me. I want to say this tonight. Death is a certain and inevitable threat to your life. It will happen. It is a real threat to your life. And let me see this, show you this. That the one who stands before you tonight has killed death itself. That is what the resurrection is all about. And this means that whoever is in Him will have life not just in the next stage, but in this one too. He is the one who has paid for all of our rebellion and willful unbelief. 
We have said, we have said this to Jesus. I want you dead, Jesus, because I want to live. And in his infinite kindness, Jesus looks at us and says, deal, deal. I'll die and you'll live. Dear friends, that is what Thomas saw tonight. Confess my Lord and my God along with him and live. Let's pray.